Thanks, Sarah. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the jar. We're glad you're here today. And uh, you all still realize that you can get home in time to see the Colts or whatever your team of choice is. So we're glad you're here. It's, it's amazing. Our 9 o'clock celebration actually has increased in attendance <laughs> since the NFL season started. So um, I'm sure a lot of them will go back once it's over or their team is no longer in it. Well, you know, one of the things that I love to watch are masters who are masterful at what they do. People like Peyton Manning, who can uh, throw a a pass 50 yards in a very narrow little opening. I hope he does that against every team except the Colts. Uh, But he's a master at his craft. And I think of uh, someone like LeBron James, who at the end of a game, you see that he takes the ball, he takes the shot, um, because he's a master at what he does. And I think of someone like Serena Williams, who uh, can hit a tennis ball right down the middle, kick an ace for 130, 140 miles an hour. And then I think of someone like myself, who's a gifted artist. I mean, you know, I figure I'm in the category, right? But I love to watch people who are highly skilled to perform their skills at levels that most of us, honestly, we can't even relate to. And today we're going to look at the most influential person in human history of how he made an attempt to influence a group of people that were very difficult to influence because they had a belief system that was so deep that it was hard to break into. And as some of you know, probably the hardest thing to do in life is to try and change someone's mind or to try and change someone's attitude. You see that going on right now with the whole crisis in Syria. Our Secretary of State, John Kerry, is going around to all of these different countries trying to give some influence that they would change their mind and they would turn towards the policy that he and the President have stated. And influencers, they just learn very quickly, that you have to spend a lot of time with people um, to be able to make that happen. If you want a person to have new thoughts or to think differently, to have a new attitude, it's a very difficult road to travel. It involves a, a lot of time, a lot of patience, a lot of creativity. And influencers rule out the use of force, typically. By its very definition, Influence doesn't work if you just try to browbeat someone to do something. It's not about intimidating. It's not about manipulation. It's not about bullying someone. True influence relies on 
reasoned conversations, friendly, thoughtful, gentle, gentle connections that you have with someone else. Nobody gets manhandled in the process if it's going to be a healthy influence on your life. So today, what I want us to look at is a man who had the greatest influence in the history of the world. And it all begins in a particular chapter of Scripture in Luke chapter 15. Luke is in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. Luke was a doctor, uh, and I kind of have a thing for doctors, so I like Luke. And um, my wife's a doctor if you're new and you're like, why did he just say that? That seems very uncomfortable. Um, Or if you're listening, uh, too. Um, But Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1, this is what it says. By this time... A lot of men and women of doubtful reputations. And when we say doubtful reputations, what are we talking about? Well, Jesus hung out with prostitutes and crooks and a whole bunch of riffraff. That's who he was with most of the time. And so these people with doubtful uh, reputations were hanging out with Jesus and they were listening intently. And the Pharisees... And the scholars were not pleased. Pharisees are just religious teachers. So these religious teachers and scholars, they're not pleased. They're not pleased at all. And they growled. He takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. So Jesus is kind of in this public square, and there's all of these people who are the riffraff, of society, and they are digging what he's having to say. And they're taking it hook, line, and sinker. They love what he's teaching about. They love uh, the spirit in which he's teaching it. But over here, away from Jesus, is another group of people. And this is the Pharisees and the religious people. We might say the church people. The church people are over here, and they're growling and grumbling and just can't believe that Jesus would actually welcome lowlifes like that. And not just welcome them, but he actually was eating dinner with them. Now, most of the time, when you eat dinner with someone... It takes anywhere from five minutes, <laughs> right, to maybe, maybe an hour. We don't spend very much time doing dinner very often. That's why we have fast food and fast this and fast the other thing. You know, I'll set up a lunch with someone. They're like, hey, uh, yeah, I can meet, but I've got to leave by 1240 so I can be back to wherever. So, We don't spend dinner. But in the first century, if you ever had dinner with someone and you were having time with them, you sat back and relaxed and you just laid back and you took it easy and there were multiple courses of food that came before you. And at a minimum, it would be three or four hours that you would just be with the people that you're having dinner with. So this like really, really bothered 
this group of Pharisees and religious leaders because not only do they see Jesus in the public square, but they've kind of been in you know, surveillance mode, watching him go to all of these messed up people's house and staying there for three or four hours. And you can just hear them grumbling, like, what is he doing in there? And it goes against everything that they had been taught in their theology, their tradition, their social etiquette. I mean, rabbis, and rabbi is just a a Jewish word that means teacher. So teachers of the law, teachers of God... They didn't talk with or connect with people who were that low. People claiming to messiahs, uh, people claiming to be a messiah, they definitely should do a better, you know, like background check. They're concerned about Jesus. You should do a background check. Vet some of these people. Don't let them around you. And theologically, these Pharisees actually believed that God in heaven could barely stand people that Jesus was hanging out with. They believed that God would have rather wiped them off the face of the earth with fire and brimstone than for God to have to deal with these wayward, messed up people. And the Pharisees, they actually believed that God was disgusted. Like there was this disgust from God, from people who were wayward or far from Him. That's their theology. That's that group over there. But Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, who is God in flesh, he knew the truth about his Father's heart because he had known him from eons before eons. And he knew his Father's heart about non-religious, wayward type people. And he knew that those people over there were dead wrong. They weren't even close to understanding the Father's heart. So now Jesus has to make some choices. Is he going to engage with these people? Is he going to connect with them? Is he going to try to influence them in some way? Well, it's a very fascinating thing that Jesus does. He does not take a confrontational approach and walk over into their circle and say, Hey, this is the way it's going to be. He doesn't do that at all. He stays in the public square with all of these messed up people around him. He sees that they're over a little bit further away. And so he goes ahead and he just tells three stories. Back to back to back. Three stories. And the interesting thing is that he doesn't really explain any of them. I mean, most good teachers, when they tell a story, then they explain something about it. Jesus, who's the best teacher of all, for some reason in this chapter, he doesn't explain anything. He just tells the story, and he hopes that within time that these Pharisees will get it. Maybe they won't get it today. Maybe it'll be tomorrow night. Maybe it'll be next week. Maybe it'll be next month. Maybe six months, but sometime the lights will come on and they'll get it. And they'll have this new understanding and it'll hit them like a ton of bricks and they'll be walking around and all of a sudden they'll be like, ah, I got it. 
I totally understand now what Jesus was talking about when he gave those three stories. Maybe their view of God will change. Maybe their view of non-religious people would change and some influence would come about. Now, most of you probably know these three stories. And if you don't, uh, we're going to talk about them today so you'll know them after today. But there are three stories back to back to back. And here's the first story. It goes like this. Then Jesus told them this story. If any of you has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will you do? Won't you leave the ninety-nine in the field and go and look for the lost sheep until you find it? So Jesus says that there is a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. Let's uh, go ahead and look at my artistic work there that Mikey has done this week. If you uh, flip it one more time, guys, it'll say a hundred sheep. So there's a hundred sheep, okay? And one of the sheep wanders away. He exits stage right. And the shepherd leaves the 99 sheep and he goes after the one missing wayward sheep. And when he finds him, the scripture tells us that he puts the sheep on his shoulders. He brings that sheep back into the 99 fold. And then he calls all of his shepherd friends and he says, hey, we're going to throw a big party because my sheep that was missing has now been found. Story number two. Jesus told the story. It goes like this. What will a woman do if she has ten silver coins and loses one of them? Won't she light a lamp? sweep the floor, and look carefully until she finds it. So here Jesus says there's a woman, and she has ten coins. And this might represent her entire estate. All that she owns, everything that she has is in these ten coins. And she misplaces one of them. One of them gets lost. And she frantically searches the house, sweeps, cleans, looks in all the crevices until finally she finds the one missing coin and then she texts and Facebooks all of her girlfriends, you know, like the big friend thing that goes to everybody, and says, guys, girlies. I don't even know what girls say, but whatever they say. <laughs> Girlfriends. But my coin was lost, and now I found it, and it's time to have a party. So come on, and let's party. Story number three. Jesus told them another story. Once there was a father that had two sons. So, here you go. There's a father 
and he has two sons. And one of the sons wanders off. He wanders away. And he offends his father because this is what happens. Think about the guts of this. Your father is still alive, and you basically go to him and say, I know you're not dead yet, but I want my inheritance now. I'm not going to wait till you die. Give it to me now. And the father does, and he takes everything that the father has given him. He goes to a foreign country, and he squanders all of it. Finally, he's living in a pig pen, and he can't even eat the food that they're feeding the pigs. He wished that he could, and he comes to his senses, the scripture says. And when he arrives, he tells his dad, he he gets ready to say, I am not worthy to be called your son. And just as he's getting ready to say it, the father totally ignores him, And says, I don't want to hear it. And he puts his arms around him. He hugs him. He gives him a great amount of love. He's so glad to see him. And then he goes out to all of his friends and family and says, we're having a big festive celebration. All of you can come. Because my son was lost, but now he's been found. He has come home. He's come home. Now, if you would, and these are your fill-in-the-blanks, you can look at the math here. It goes from 100 to 10 to what? How many sons? Two. So from 100 to 10 to two. And look at the progression of value. It goes from animals to an estate, to a son. You know, this chapter is, uh, it's like my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. I love the Bible, but this for me, like when the rubber meets the road, this is it. In fact, I've studied, I've taught on this uh, scripture for close to 17 years now. I've taught on the shepherd and the one lost sheep. I've taught on the woman and the ten coins. I've taught on the father and the two sons. But it wasn't until we started the jar that I actually read this chapter and I put them all together. And I'll never forget that day when it it just hit me like a ton of bricks. That there are some themes here that Jesus, he's so clever on how he does things, of how he tells stories. And there was, he didn't just pick three stories, folks. He, He picked them very specifically and he put them in a certain order so that people would get it. And I'll never forget reading them all like together and then finally, uh, you know, there were like these common themes that just came. It just like kind of rocked my world. The first theme uh, that came to my mind was this. Something of value comes up missing in each of the stories. 
there's something of value that comes up missing in each of these stories. And, and what is missing, the sheep, the coin, the son, really, really matters to somebody. Like it really, really matters to somebody. Now, in our technological world, uh, even in our agricultural world, at least in the U.S., we don't really talk about shepherds and sheep, do we? I mean, shepherds and sheep are left for Christmas. We hope our kid is not the sheep and the kid is the shepherd, right? Or if you really like sheep, little cute little sheep, you think, oh, they'll be cute to be a sheep. But other than that, we don't register. This story doesn't mean much. But I was thinking about it this week. And some of you in here, you have pets. That's a dog or a cat. And maybe you've had this dog or this cat for 10 years. And it's become like family to you guys. And if that dog or that cat wanders away... It matters, doesn't it? Like it like it really, really matters. And many of us, when we see the second story, we go, Well, it's just a coin. It's just a silver coin. I got silver coins. But the text seems to tell us that this was all this woman had. It was like her entire life savings were these ten coins. So you take your entire life savings and you lose a tenth of it today before you walk out of these doors. You would move heaven and earth to try to find that one coin. And of course, if you have a son, or if you have children, and some of you are at an age in which you have children that might be a wayward child. They're far from God. In fact, some of you haven't even connected with them for months or years, and you know what it feels like to miss a son or to miss a daughter. And maybe some of you, you know where they're at, but the choices that they're making are so painful to watch. And you look and you're like, ah, I know what it feels like to lose something, to miss something. Something's missing. A mom, a dad, they understand that. I have two girls, uh, many of you know that, ages six and four. And a couple of uh, months ago, we went on vacation to uh, Fort Lauderdale, and the girls spent almost the entire time either on the beach or in the ocean or in a swimming pool. Uh, where we stayed, uh, there was a beach, tons of people, kind of the end before you know school started, and there were tons of people, and there were tons of people uh, up where the two swimming pools were, and they just loved it. And our girls are fish. Like, they love to swim. So they will, you know, be there from sun up to sundown. They want to be doing that, and they'll make uh, sandcastles and... and they love them, and then I make them, and then they tear mine down. Um, but they love to, to do this. And one particular day, we're down 
And we have our umbrella up that we had rented, and we're getting all the toys together and the chairs. And you know what? If you're a parent, you know what that's like. You like get them all up, and you're like at the end of the day, and you're smelly and stinky, and the kids are whiny, and you know you're all trying to get to the hotel room. And so we're walking uh, up there, and I told Jennifer, I said, hey. I need to go to the rental hut and pay for our bill today because Jordan had taken me out on one of those trampolines in the ocean that you jump up and down. If you're 40, you should never do that. <laughs> it can be painful stuff that happens to your knees, okay? Um, so don't do that. But you see it there in the background, and so it's out there, and so she was real excited that day. Dad, we did it, you know, and and uh, so I said, well, Jen, why don't you take the girls, you go on up, and then I'll uh, go to the hut, and I'll, I'll pay for the umbrella, the, you know, the, the thing out in the ocean, uh, whatever it was, trampoline. And uh, that's a hard word, isn't it? Trampoline. And um, I'll pay for, we had bought some drinks and stuff. And, and so I go up and I pay for it. And then I walk on the boardwalk. And I walk up, and there are swimming pools at the place where we stayed, and so I walk up and I pass the first swimming pool. I go to the second one and Jen's there and Shiloh's there and I didn't think too much about it. Uh, so I just kind of walked up and I said, well, Jen, where's Jordan? At? And she said, well, she said she was with you. And this was my response. Well, obviously she's not with me. That's not really a healthy thing to say uh, at that moment. But I go ahead and I said, well, she's not with me. Where, where's she at? And she goes, I don't know. And all of a sudden, man, we, we, we just started frantically looking for my daughter. We went to one swimming pool and she wasn't there. And we go to the next swimming pool and she's not there. And we, we run down to the beach where we had set up our umbrella. And I'm looking and she's not there. And I just start yelling out loud, Jordan, Jordan. And there's all these people that are looking around like, you know, who's this crazy guy? You know, and I'm yelling, Jordan, Jordan. And all of a sudden, I had one of those images in my head. Of that Amber Alert thing that you get. Or the thing that's on the back of the milk boxes or that you see at Walmart of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed little girl, which I know is the one that often is taken. And all of a sudden, I'm just yelling as hard as I can. And I can't find her. And I finally ran up to the hut where we had rented all the stuff. And I'm yelling, Jordan, Jordan, Jordan. And I walked around to the other side of the hut, and here's a little blonde-haired girl with ponytails. You know, folks, it was probably two to three minutes at the most. But in that moment, I experienced an ache in my life that I had never experienced before. And when I found her, I picked her up and I hugged her and I loved her. And I'll tell you, the thought of losing her 
on that day was just about as much as my system could take. And so I picked her up and I was hugging her and then I kind of set her down. And I said, if you ever do this again, I'll kill you. (laughs) And she's like... Now, why does, why does Jesus tell these three stories? Because something of value wound up missing in each of these stories. An animal, a coin, a son, and that which was missing really, really mattered. And Jesus was hoping that someday... Two days from now, a week from now, a month from now, those guys that were over there, that hopefully they'd just be walking around and it would hit them like a ton of bricks. Ah, you've got to be kidding me. Is it possible? Is it really possible that God the Father could reach down and love someone that much? That he really likes these disgusted, irreligious people? Did, could Jesus really have this right? Is it possible that he could love them the same way that the shepherd loved the sheep and the woman cared for her coin and that the father loved his son. Because if that is possible, if that's true, it's going to blow the theology that we've been learning totally out of the water. And I'm going to think differently about the way that God the Father thinks about wayward people. Have you ever been ambushed or body slammed by God of understanding how important wayward people are? I meet Christ followers all the time, and they're disgusted with wayward people. They'll say to me, oh, the language at my work is so horrible. There's especially two guys, they're just jerks. They just, they cuss like sailors all the time. Or, you know, what they do is they take their paychecks on Fridays, they go and they cash it immediately, and then they go to the bars and they party, and they're shacking up with this person or the other person, And it's just disgusting. Or, you should see my neighbor. The way my neighbor yells at my kids, I cannot believe it. They're a horrible parent. I can't believe they would act like that. And on and on and on. And when people, I don't know why, but they feel like they need to tell the pastor that they're holy, but everyone else is a, well, you know. But when they come up to me, I'll go, you're disgusted with them, aren't you? Like, you wish you could vote them off the island, don't you? You think that you're right and that God thinks you're right and they're wrong. But it's not true. It's just not true. Jesus revealed the heart of the Father in three stories Back to back to back. So you think of someone at work or someone in your neighborhood who is way off track emotionally, spiritually, 
morally. However, they're off track. But you know what's happening in heaven right now with that person? There is an ache that permeates from the Father's heart to everyone in heaven to say this is a person that matters. And it's a person that our heart is aching for. And you need to know that God loves them just as much as He loves you. I can remember when I got that wake-up call, that ambush. I was 26 years old. Every person that I knew that I had a significant relationship with was already a follower of Christ. And God ripped my heart out and said, why are you just worrying about them? There is a lost world. And I remember on that particular time praying to God, going, God, please forgive me to think that you're disgusted with other people. God, please forgive me that I am not thinking about wayward, far from God people more and more. And I pray today that some of you might have a sleepless night tonight. And your heart would be gripped so much that you would say, you know what, I never want to think of God that way. I never want to think of people who are wayward the way that maybe I have. Here's the second common theme. It's very strong in the first two stories and uh, a little less obvious in the third one. But here's the theme. Something that is missing is worth an all-out search. Something that is missing is worth an all-out search. I mean, it was very inconvenient, wasn't it, for the shepherd to have to leave the 99 sheep to go and to search and to look to find just one. I mean, it makes sense with math, doesn't it? Just forget the one, stay with the 99. But what does the story say? That the shepherd wasn't complaining about it. He leaves the 99. He finds the one. And when he does, he puts him on his shoulder and he celebrates. Why? Because the sheep matters. It's very inconvenient for the woman to have to turn on the light, to start sweeping, to have to carefully look all over the house and every uh, crevice to try to find this. But the story doesn't say that she's complaining about it. She willingly does it. Why? Because the coin matters. Now, the father doesn't run after the kid because the father is wise enough to know that sometimes people will just have to have some rebellion. And they've got to figure out for themselves. But you know what the scripture says? The scripture says that the father looked upon the horizon every single day to try to see his son coming home. In other words, I have a picture of him on a back porch. And there's this long road that goes all the way down to the end of the property. And here is a father every single day looking at the horizon till the sun goes down, waiting, hoping that his son comes home. He's searching because searching goes on and on. Why? Because the thing that was missing, folks, really, really mattered. It warranted an all-out search. 
So Jesus is hoping that these Pharisees that are over here, one day when they're walking around, that just all of a sudden they would understand it, maybe for the first time, that, wow, God's not looking to throw down fire and brimstone on people who are far from Him. He's out searching for them. He's looking for them. 24-7 365 days a year, He is out looking for them, searching for them. You know, last week we had our First Steps with Chris class. And if you haven't done that, I encourage you to do that. But this next week we're going to have our Next Steps class. And if you're just connecting with God for the first time or you're a new Christian, this is the class you want to go to. You can ask questions. There are no dumb questions. Uh, You can kind of learn about this whole Jesus and, and, and what he means and what the church is about. And many of these people were either in that searching time or they're brand new Christians. And I was amazed to hear how many of their stories they talked about, oh, there were these things in my past, like if I looked in a rearview mirror, that God actually was searching me out. In fact, one guy was telling me uh, that he had a woman that he had done business with who she had been praying for him for 30 years. Think about that. Somebody praying for someone for 30 years, and he could look in the rearview mirror and he could see, even though he wasn't close to God, he could see things that were happening where God was searching him out as a kid in high school, searching, seeking. And almost every new Christian that I ever talk to, they can tell me about looking at their past and they can remember pivotal things, even though they weren't a follower of God, that God was searching, seeking them out. Folks, the person at your work, the person in your neighborhood who bothers you the most, who gets underneath your skin, guess what? They are being sought out by God right now. God is constantly searching out. He's thinking about them. He's looking for them. He's knocking on their door. And some of you here today, you haven't put your faith in Christ. God's seeking you out right now. In fact, you realize, folks, that if you're here and you've not made a commitment to Christ, the reality is that He's seeking you out right now. And you know what He's saying? It's not coincidence that you're here today. I've been doing everything that I could to get you here today. And some of you today should surrender. (laughs) Quit running away from home, and God says, come home. Come home. Here's the third theme in the story. It's so obvious and powerful. I never had seen this before until we started the jar. And then all of a sudden it just, it hit me. I was at a conference one day and this text was being taught. I was like, oh man, I get it. It's so powerful, obvious. And it's this, retrievals lead to rejoicing. Retrievals bring rejoicing. They bring great rejoicing. When the shepherd finds the sheep, he 
doesn't kick the sheep and say, you dumb sheep. You're a dumb sheep. Why did you walk away? He runs. He picks the sheep up, puts him on his shoulders. He brings him back to the other 99, and that's not enough. Not just to bring him back to the fold, but then he says, we're going to have a party. And he invites all of his friends, all of his family to come. And they party and they celebrate because this sheep that was missing has been found. It's party time. And the woman, when she finds her missing coin, she calls all of her girlfriends and she says, Come on, we're going to get some cheese and wine and we're going to celebrate. We're going to have manicures and pedicures and, you know, the whole thing. We're, going to, we're just going to have our own. We're going to celebrate. And they throw a party and the joy is overflowing. And we all know the story of the prodigal son. The father is absolutely overjoyed. And the scripture says that even before the son gets to the house, the father runs towards him. And I can't tell you how, I don't even know how to explain it, because in that culture, a man of this man's stature, if you're the father of the house, you don't run to people. People run to you. And he drops everything and he runs to his son and he picks him up and he doesn't say, why did you squander my money? He doesn't say, you just wasted a year of your life. The scripture says he he put his arms around him and he hugged him and he kissed him and he goes out and he gets all of his friends and family and they, they have a big old spread, like better than MCL cafeteria, you know what I mean? It's just like spread everywhere. And it's free. It's all free. Come. My son was lost, but now he's been found. He's home. And there's only one, there's only one verse in this entire chapter that Jesus gives any explanation about what all this means, all these three stories, back to back to back. It's verse 7. This is what he says. Count on it. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life than over 99 good people in no need of rescue. That's it, folks. Several years ago, Jennifer and I had the opportunity to uh, go to a Colts game and uh, we were at this Colts game, and it was the day that they put Tony Dungy, who was a, a former coach of the Colts, into the Ring of Honor. The Ring of Honor is like the inside of the stadium. There's this big ring, and they put people's names up. There's only been seven people who've ever been put up in this Ring of Honor, and, and Tony was one of them. And when he and his wife... Uh, got to the middle of it. I mean, the crowd just went crazy. I was there when they beat the Patriots to go to the Super Bowl, and it was not nearly as loud as this particular day. I mean, people were clapping and yelling. I mean, everybody's just like going crazy, just lifting him up. Man of integrity, a man of honor. 
And they finally even, they, they had to get the crowd. They're like, please, we've got to go on. And so they show this, this video, and the video is done, and people are still clapping. And they finally just had to, like, say, okay, we've, we're done, you know, and they, they took him off. But in the middle of all of this, everyone's clapping, and I'm clapping too. And all of a sudden, I get a prompting from the Holy Spirit that said, Chris, that's what all of heaven does when someone who has been far from me comes home. And it's not just 70,000 people. That's a lot of people. It gets loud in there. But it's trillions and trillions of people and angelic beings who celebrate every single time a person turns to Christ. And I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm clapping and cheering. I'm like, oh, that's a weird thought. And then all of a sudden I got this picture in my mind, another prompting. Where God said, when you were 12 years old and you turned a knee to me, Jesus came right beside me in heaven and said, that's my son. And all of heaven stopped in that one moment when I turned my life to Christ and they stopped doing what they were doing, and it was all directed on me. And all of a sudden, I'm clapping, and tears start coming down from my face. I'm crying at this thing, and a person besides me like, wow, Dungey meant a lot to you, didn't he? <laughs> I'm like, he had no clue, folks. And I'm telling you, I don't even remember that game. I don't remember the score. I don't remember anything about that whole thing except being there and thinking for the first time in my life how valued I am to God. That His love for me, folks, goes way beyond my earthly comprehension. And that He wants us to love wayward people like He loves them. My world was rocked that day. And folks, I just want you to know that the day that you accepted Jesus Christ, if you have, whatever day that was, all of heaven stopped what they were doing and they simply cheered and yelled and supported you. And Jesus continues to do that every single day as you walk with Him. And if you've never accepted Christ... This is what I want you to know, and I want all of us to know. You matter to God. You really, really matter to God. And every single person is just one prayer away from having this heavenly celebration. And this is the thing about the ring of honor in heaven. You see, the ring of honor for the cults is only seven have got in. When you have the ring of honor in heaven... All it takes is for you to turn the knee to Christ. And when that happens, you're in the ring of honor forever. For eternity, you're in the ring.
Let me say it again. You matter to God. You matter so much to God. And this is the other thing, and this is the take-home message of this entire chapter. It all comes down to this, folks. People matter to God. People matter to God. Folks, every person matters to God. You have never locked eyes on another human being that did not matter to God. Every person matters. Red and yellow, black and white, rich and poor, young and old, hetero, homo, Republican, Democrat, independent. And I know some of you don't think they matter, but they do. All of them matter to God. And they matter infinitely. And if they matter that much to the Father, who is in heaven then shouldn't they matter to us? In fact, people ought to matter to us more than things. We should simply use our things to serve people. People matter more than achievements. People matter more than reputations. People matter more than money. The single greatest gift, folks, you could ever give to anyone in your entire life is to introduce them to the heavenly Father who runs after them because He loves them, He created them, He has a purpose for their life. You know, when we first started the jar, one of the things we did was we had this um, idea of a one-one-one card. And basically, it was just a little card, and you would pray for one person at one o'clock each day for one minute. And we've seen hundreds of people come to Christ um, because of this. And typically, this is a challenge that I do at the very beginning of the year because I want people to have enough prayer and enough guts to invite their folks, to invest in their folks, to spend time, to build relationships with them. But five weeks from today, we're going to start a new series that I really believe is going to be groundbreaking for the jar. And the series is going to be called God of a Second Chance. We're going to have a a television commercial and multiple ways of letting people know that they can have a second chance. And on October 27th, we want you to invite people who are wayward, who are far from God, to come and to be a part of a second chance. In fact, we actually created a little card here, and you can pull it out. Pull it out of your program real quick. If you don't have one, just raise your hand. Someone will get one to you. You won't leave until everyone has one, so if you don't have one, I'd encourage you to raise your hand. And uh, they'll get them right here, some over here too. So just raise your hand, they'll get them to you. But on the front of this card, if you have it or when you get it, it'll say your name. All we need is your first name, okay? So that's easy. You know your name, right? There's some more people over here. Uh, Your name. And then I'd like you to think of that one wayward person in Muncie or Delaware County, okay? It does not help if they live in Las Vegas because they're not going to come to people of a second chance, okay? Okay? Someone in Las Vegas can pray for them to go 
somewhere in Las Vegas. Okay? But someone in Muncie or Delaware County who you know is far from God and you put their name there and then you'll turn it around and you'll just put that same person's name four different times. One right Anybody can do this. It doesn't matter the age. And uh, I'm going to give you some time to do that right now. So I'm going to do it too. And if you don't have a card, by the end of this whole thing, you'll feel not so good. So if you need a card, just rate it. But go ahead, your name and then the person's name, okay? Typically, what we've done is when we do this, we ask people, well, pray for this person and pray for them for the next 36 days is basically what it is until October 27th. But I don't know about you, every once in a while, I'll pick somebody who's far from God and I just kind of don't have the same energy to pray for them. And so what I actually need is for someone else to pray for them. So what I want you to do right now is to stand up. Don't leave yet, but just stand up and to give this to somebody not in your family or somebody that you came with, okay? And then we're going to close in prayer. So give it to someone. You're just going to exchange it with somebody else, okay? So there you go. So just exchange it with somebody else. doesn't matter. And if you're like this your first time, you're like, this is weird. Just deal with it, I guess. After you've exchanged, everybody stand up. We're going to close in prayer so everybody can stand up. And I'm going to ask our prayer team to come up uh, if they want to come up and they can pray for anybody that they want to. And I'm going to do this in just a second. I did it at the very beginning with the first service. And people were like holding their hands because it took a little bit longer than I thought to say what I was going to say. So don't put it up yet. But in just a second, I'm going to pray and I'm going to have all of us hold these cards up. Because, folks, this just isn't a card. This is a person that matters to God. And you know who else they matter to? Like Bonnie and I just shared. So who she has really matters to Bonnie. And I need to pray for this person every single day because it matters. And the person that I wrote down and Bonnie has, that Bonnie is going to pray for this person every day. Just a minute. You don't have to be praying forever. And then what we, what I really believe, folks, that God is in the business of moving the jar in a huge way through this campaign that we're having. And it's all going to be because we're going to pray to the heart of the Father to say, we know you have a heart for people who, far, who are far from God. So, God, would you give us opportunities now to invite them to come and to meet the Father in this place? I mean, it really, really matters to the Father. And so we're going to hold up these people and we're going to pray for them now. And so if you would, just hold your card up. Uh, here for a second. Hold it up. And you'll invite the person, but someone else is going to be praying for the person that you wrote down. So let's pray. 
loving God, I pray that there would be an infusion of your Holy Spirit into our lives. Thank you, God, for constantly searching the horizon for us. We all were far from you at one point, and you searched until you found us. And now we're a part of your eternal family. And God, these names of people that we're holding up to you, they're your kids. They're your kids, and they matter. They matter to you. They matter to the person that we're going to pray for. And they matter to us. So God, I pray right now through your Holy Spirit that you would bring them home on the 27th of October. You're a big God. You're a huge God. You can do all things. And so we pray right now in Jesus' name that you give us strength to pray for them daily, that their eyes would be opened and their hearts would be softened to hear from the Father. Bring them home for a second chance, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're new, 